If you weren't with us last Sunday, let me just kind of very quickly recap where things presently stand. After spending about a year ministering in the region of Judea, most notably the capital city of Jerusalem, a year that would see Jesus go from being a relatively unknown rabbi from Nazareth to now drawing crowds that were even greater than John the Baptist, Jesus decides to return to Galilee. And he does this to set up his base of operations in a town known as Capernaum. Capernaum was a predominant fishing village. It was situated on the north shore of, again, the Sea of Galilee. In Matthew 4, verse 17, we're then told that from that time, so upon Jesus' arrival back to Galilee, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as we transition to the last three verses of the fourth chapter, Matthew is going to provide his reader, you and I, with a really broad depiction, a description of what Jesus' ministry in the Galilee practically looked like, as well as the impact he was making. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, we read, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. For starters, this phrase, and Jesus went about all Galilee, indicates that he was going from kind of town to town to town. That in a sense, Jesus was making the rounds, traveling throughout the region. We noted last Sunday that that Galilee was really about 900 square miles, and it contained about 204 towns. The area was incredibly populated, very densely populated. In fact, this word Galilee, it's interesting, it, it literally means circuit or circle. It's what the word Galilee means, and it described kind of the route that Jesus would have taken in a circle around the Sea of Galilee. According to Matthew's account, As Jesus is making his way, again, town to town to town, throughout the region, upon arriving at each of these villages, his focus, according to, again, Matthew, would be threefold. If you look at the text, first, Jesus would teach in their synagogues, he would preach the gospel of the kingdom, and he would heal all kinds of sicknesses and diseases. Now, historically, we understand that the synagogue, this word synagogue, the idea of a synagogue, A synagogue was a local place that the Jewish community would congregate with one another. And a lot of activities would happen at the synagogue. On the Sabbath, they would gather together and read the scriptures and worship. But throughout the week, it would act as kind of a community center where the the kids would be taught and uh, they would be educated. It's worth noting that Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, the verse we just read, happens to be the very first mention of the word synagogue and the entire Bible, the synagogue. It's interesting. The Old Testament never at any point commissions the formation or even sanctioned the operation of such a place. In contrast, the worship of God, according to the law, was to be relegated wherever the presence of God dwelt. Early on, it was the tabernacle of meeting. Later, it was the temple. Because of this, most scholars believe that the concept of the synagogue came into existence during the Babylonian captivity. Not only had the the temple been destroyed, but the Hebrew people had been scattered across the world. And since that was the case, in order to maintain kind of a national and religious heritage while in exile, 
These smaller pockets of Jewish populations across the empire, situated in foreign territories, would gather together, again on the Sabbath, to worship. They called that place the synagogue. The word synagogue, it means bringing together. That's what the word means. And it originally referred to when the Jews would gather together in foreign areas, similar then to the kind of the linguistic evolution of the word church. You know, the church is not a building. It's the people that meet in the building. But what do you say? I'm going to church. So over time, you know, it, it begins to take on a dual function. Synagogue was the gathering, but over time, the place that they gathered would just become known as the synagogue. According to the Hebrew Talmud, if a town anywhere possessed at a minimum of 10 Hebrew men, it was required that a synagogue exist. Aside from the Galilee, it's worth pointing out that the Apostle Paul, if you read through the book of Acts, he would visit synagogues located in all kinds of places, faraway places, Damascus, Salamis, Antioch, Iconium, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus. If you go and you study when Paul goes to Philippi, interesting, there wasn't a synagogue because there wasn't enough Jewish men that lived in the town to necessitate one. So Paul went and met with some of the women down by the river that would gather there to worship. Now, with regards to the Galilee, because people were only allowed to walk so many steps on the Sabbath before it then constituted work, virtually every town around the Sea of Galilee would have possessed a synagogue. Case in point, archaeologically, we know that Capernaum, had one of the most elaborate synagogues in the entire region. And the Bible gives us an explanation for that because there was a, rothy, a wealthy Roman centurion that lived in Capernaum that was a religious man that financed the construction of it. You could visit that synagogue today, the ruins of it. Now in this summary of Jesus' ministry in this area, Matthew tells us that he would utilize the synagogue and the traditional Sabbath gathering as a place where he could teach the people and preach and heal. And that day, every town would have not just had a synagogue, but would have also had what was known as the ruler of the synagogue. The, the ruler of the synagogue didn't really function so much like a pastor, but a facilitator. The ruler of the synagogue, it was his job to care for the grounds and supervise additional activities. He facilitated the service on the Sabbath. Most of the time, especially in this day and age, the, the, the service on the Sabbath was very ritualistic, in, in a lot of ways automated. A time would come where the, the scriptures would be read, there would be prayers, there was a whole kind of process to it. But when it did come to the scriptures, the ruler of the synagogue would, would tend to call on one of the elders of the community to come up and just share, to read a passage of scripture, typically wherever they were uh, that particular day. The, the interesting thing is that if there was a rabbi, so most of the, most of the time it's one of the elders coming up and reading, but if a, if a rabbi was present in attendance, at that point, instead of having one of the elders read, uh, the rabbi would be invited to come up, and he could pick whatever text he wanted to, to speak on, and then he could comment. When Jesus would come to these various towns, and when he would enter their synagogues, this particular custom would afford him like the perfect platform to do ministry. It's why Paul would do the same thing as he's traveling the world. Jesus would teach as well as preach the gospel of the kingdom. Again, I noted it last Sunday. It's worth repeating. 
that more than anything else, like what was Jesus known for? Well, he was known as being a teacher and a preacher. It's worth pointing out that we have here two different words translated teach and preach. The first described the act of providing an explanation, you know, to help with understanding. The second word depicted then the issuing of a proclamation based upon what you had just learned. What this tells us, the fact that Jesus was a teacher and a preacher, is that he would enter the synagogue and he would take the scroll and he would open to a passage and he would teach the passage. Make sure everyone understood what was being articulated, what was being communicated. And then he would take that text and he would make a proclamation. He would herald, he would preach the gospel, literally the good news of the kingdom. A great example of this you can find in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus enters the synagogue there in Nazareth, takes the scroll, opens from a passage in Isaiah, reads a section, and he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing and himself. Very radical. What Jesus was doing, and the way he was going about doing it, was to a large extent revolutionary. Typically a rabbi, when the time would come, he would read a section, and then he he would, in his commentary, would basically, well, this rabbi has this position on this passage. And, and this other rabbi has this position. There's some, uh, you know, some parallel points. I have this. It, it was always the, just the repeating of positions. Rabbis would never make definitive statements. In fact, in Matthew 7, and again, you can find it in other places, we're told that the people, when they heard Jesus speak, they were astonished at his teaching. Why? Well, we're told because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Did you hear the one about the rabbi who walked into a bar with a frog on his shoulder? Perplexed, the bartender asked where he found such an interesting character. The frog answered, Brooklyn. I'm sorry for that. I just, I just thought like a fun joke might cheer up any Dodger fans in attendance that are still grappling with the collateral damage of Max Muncie getting hurt. I got it, Sean. I was dared to include it. Keeping you on your toes. Matthew says that aside from teaching and preaching, that Jesus would heal. He would heal people of all kinds of sicknesses, all kinds of diseases. While there is no question that Jesus' ability to heal and his ability to cast out demons, which we'll see in a moment, well, there's no question this was a a dominant part of his ministry. You you find this when you read through the Gospels. Jesus, he preached and he taught, but then he, he healed people. He liberated people. Understand that that came as a secondary purpose to and in support of his teaching and preaching ministry. You see, the purpose and the miraculous acts that Jesus would perform, it intended to validate the power of his word as well as to confirm his identity. In fact, John the Baptist will have kind of a crisis of faith later on. We'll see this. And what does Jesus point to? He says, tell John, and then he gives a list of the miracles that were happening. Confirming his identity, because when was the last time lepers had been healed and the blind were were able to see? 
So it validated his power, confirmed his identity. You know, it's hard to overstate how unexpected all of this would have been for those who already believed that Jesus was the Messiah. You see, anyone that had an understanding of, of, of the man who was promised to come understood that the Christ would possess power. That was not debated. But everyone believed that the power that the Messiah would have would be wielded to grant Israel victory over her enemies. You know, in the end, their view of the Messiah's mission was right and wrong. It was misguided ultimately because they failed to identify what the real enemy was. The real enemy wasn't Rome. The real enemy was sin. And though we know that Jesus would ultimately battle sin at the cross, he began his assault by attacking the tragic effects of sin, the effects that it yielded practically in the lives of men and women. You know, how inspiring is it that Jesus used his power to demonstrate mercy and compassion to those who were suffering as a result of, of illnesses, sicknesses, diseases? How inspiring is it, is it to consider that Jesus would spend time to tenderly care for for people who had been relegated to the lowest rungs of society as a consequence of their illnesses and their sicknesses. Again, Jesus' love for people shattered their misconceptions of what the king would really be like. Yes, it's entirely true that Jesus came to teach the people about the kingdom of God. Without question, Jesus was first and foremost a preacher, and yet, Tending to the practical needs of hurting people was not below him. We'll find examples where Jesus would see the multitudes and he would stay up all night healing everyone that came. Christian, never forget. The words you speak to someone will take on a deeper meaning when they're also coupled with the love you show them. Jesus, Jesus could speak on the kingdom but he was willing to show the love of the kingdom in a very practical way. Matthew, he closes the chapter by recording what resulted from this radical season of ministry. Verses 24 and 25, we read, Then Jesus' fame went throughout all of Syria. And that's, that's fascinating. Syria is a huge region. It's another country. It's a, it's a region north of Galilee. So his fame went through Syria. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. That word torments, it's literally tortures, agonies, acute pains. And those who were demon-possessed, we'll, we'll shelve the demon-possession thing for, for another time. We'll get to it. He healed epileptics. This word, it's literally those who are moonstruck, the lunatic, and paralytics, or those who had been afflicted with palsy. We're told that he healed them. And, and as a result of these things, Matthew notes that great multitudes followed him. And in all likelihood, this would have been in the thousands. And included in the great multitude were those from Galilee, obviously, from Decapolis. This was ten prominent Gentile cities to the east. Jerusalem, that's a hundred miles south. Judea and beyond the Jordan. I mean, what Jesus was doing in the region of Galilee, was so profound, so impactful, 
that it was drawing massive crowds from all over the place. A sea of humanity was making its way to the Galilee. A sea of humanity that, mind you, were predominantly sick, desperate. People were traveling hundreds of miles just hoping they might have a chance to encounter this man they had heard of, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> Most amazingly, there was no technology. This is, this is a fame that is spreading very organically. Word of mouth. Amazing. Now, knowing that there were no chapter and verse breaks in Matthew's original presentation of the gospel, this summary that he provides us of Jesus' ministry in the Galilee intends to set the stage and provide some important context for what comes immediately next. So let's look. Chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, so we've been given context, the scene has been set, and seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain. And in, the, in that area, this, a mountain is basically a hill. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. This picture of Jesus sitting down, this was the traditional posture of a rabbi in that day. Uh, the rabbi sat, the audience stood. Um, I thought that we should employ such a thing. It keeps people awake. We're told that he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And, and our lead-in for what is traditionally known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Beginning with verse 3 all the way to the end of Matthew chapter 7, we have this incredible sermon. The Sermon on the Mount. But there are here in these two verses a few details that, that we have to discuss, that we have to unpack because it will help us in our understanding of what Jesus is articulating. Now, while Matthew has just finished telling us that it was Jesus' custom to teach and preach from synagogues, on account now of his incredible popularity, Jesus is forced to utilize outdoor venues to accommodate larger crowds of people. There are many examples of this in the Gospels. For this occasion, for this particular sermon, Matthew says that Jesus went up on one of the many mountains that surrounded the Sea of Galilee, and his intention in doing this was to teach. So you would have the crowds below Jesus, the water of the Sea of Galilee behind them, meaning that Jesus here is utilizing the perfect acoustics where he could be heard by the growing crowds, by the, the large number of people. One scholar that I like to read even noted how the Greek phrase that's translated, he opened his mouth, it's a very deliberate phrase. It implies that Jesus, he spoke loudly, demonstrably, that he was projecting. Basically that Jesus, he goes up, he sits down, but he began to speak like a man who had something to say. A lot of the depictions of Jesus that you see in, sometimes in the movies, you know, have him meek and mild and very timid and soft-spoken. Like, what's he saying? No, Jesus had a booming voice. He spoke loudly. And the flow of his presentation of Jesus as the king and the mention of his ministry being focused on teaching and preaching, it now makes total sense, doesn't it? Why Matthew would provide for us, provide for the reader, 
Now, a practical example of what a typical sermon from Jesus would look like. His ministry was teaching and preaching. Let me give you an example of it. That's kind of the flow here. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount records for us the first and most famous sermon that Jesus ever gave. Now, there are some scholars who will argue that other passages, for example, like Luke chapter 6, present another version of the Sermon on the Mount because of the obvious similarities in content. The Beatitudes are repeated in in Luke 6, and you'll find uh, parts and portions of the sermon repeated in other instances. It is important to note, however, that there are several significant differences between the Luke 6 account and and Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that that make it impossible. In fact, you would call Luke 6 Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. The geography is even different. can't be the same sermon. Now, one explanation for all of this that's presented by David Guzik, I, I find it to be very fascinating. And the more I've chewed on it, I, I agree with it. I'd never heard it before, uh, but it's worth, it's worth pointing out. Guzik, he contends that the record of the Sermon on the Mount, so what we have presented here as the Sermon on the Mount, and these three chapters, is likely incomplete. Now, to validate this position, Guzik notes that it took him only a little under 13 minutes to read the entire sermon. So it is reasonable to assume that Jesus would have probably taught for a longer period of time. Guzik also argues that the Sermon on the Mount then presents for us probably more of an outline of the content that dominated Jesus' preaching while he was on this Galilean circuit. So again, the flow of the text, Matthew says, hey, he comes to the Galilee, he's on this circuit, he's going into the synagogues, he's preaching to the people. This was the emphasis of his ministry. Now I'm going to give you an example of this teaching, of of the content, but I'm not going to record all of it. I'm just going to give you like the the general uh, points. And then as a result, Jesus would probably expound on these things at different points. Basically, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of the core summary of Jesus' message, but as you read through it, note that Jesus probably would take sections and expound even, even like in more detail. We have examples of this in other places. It's reasonable to assume that this is probably the framework of the sermon, which again, I think is, is interesting. Either way, what really makes any sermon given by Jesus so deeply consequential And and don't miss this. This is probably like the most basic elementary point you can make and a lead into the Sermon on the Mount. But what makes it so consequential is that it's a sermon given by God. (laughs) Like, this is a sermon given by God himself. Like, think about the implications of that. You know, we have other really famous sermons recorded in the scriptures by men like Peter. We have an example of that in, in the first part of Acts. You have sermons by the Apostle Paul, sermons inspired by God, working through the unique personalities and flair of each man. So so you read Peter's sermon or one of Paul's sermon, inspired by God, very cool, but in reading it, you also get a flair for the man. You get a a bit of his personality. You kind of get to know him, his style. Paul loves run-on sentences. The first thing you'll learn about him, you know? But when it comes to Jesus... A sermon given by Jesus. Think about that. It is a sermon inspired by God, like the others, but being presented through the personality of God. The personality of Jesus. 
Like this means that as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, not only do we have the, the substance of what he says to grapple with and to unpack, but as we do it, we're also given this beautiful, wonderful glimpse into Jesus and his personality and how he processed things. One scholar noted that the basis for the ethics of this sermon is not what works, but rather the way God is. I agree. Another detail that's critical to our understanding of the Sermon on the Mount centers on Jesus' motivation, what motivated him to give this sermon, as well as who was the attended audience. You've got to answer those two questions to understand what's happening. Like notice, again, back at, back at the text, kind of Matthew's setup. And seeing the multitudes, his disciples came to him. He taught them, saying. Like that's, that's the setup. Now, there's no question, no doubt, that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, by the way, Matthew presents it, was given in direct response to what? The multitudes of people who were coming from all over to be healed by him. That was the motivation. And yet, while we can imagine that the multitudes were able to hear the things that Jesus was sharing, don't overlook the important fact the intended audience was who? His disciples. He sees the multitude that motivates him to, to, to share something. The audience in which he shares it is not the multitudes, but his disciples. That's important. Again, at this point in Jesus' Galilean ministry, the use of this term disciple needs to have a very broad interpretation. Now, Matthew's already presented for us. He's recorded Jesus' calling of, of Peter and Andrew, James and John. We saw that in the previous chapter. But we know from Scripture that disciples, Jesus had many others who had been commissioned. In fact, even when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he's not selected the twelve from the greater whole. We'll, we'll return to that idea in a moment. But, but what this means, and again, the Sermon on the Mount was a message that Jesus crafted for his disciples out of a concern for the hurting multitudes. Always keep that in mind. Now, one of the mistakes and the way that people have interpreted and therefore applied the Sermon on the Mount is the false belief that Jesus was articulating to the world the ideal ethic that mankind should live by. That's not true. That overlooks the fact that the world, the multitude, was not the audience. This was not a sermon for the unbeliever. This was not a sermon to try to convince someone to believe in him. This was a sermon Jesus gives for his disciples, the believers, we would just say Christians. With that in mind, as a sermon directed towards his disciples, what's he doing? Well, Jesus is describing not... He's not presenting to the world an ethic to live by, but he's describing to his disciples what their lives should look like. More specifically, what our lives should look like. What some have called Jesus' manifesto, and others the declaration of his kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was articulating what characteristics should dominate our lives as citizens of the kingdom of heaven living on earth. Like, in effect, in this sermon, Jesus is describing the citizens of his kingdom. 
men and women who've rejected this fallen world and have accepted him already as their sovereign king. Now, here's the rub. If left to our own abilities, the Sermon on the Mount presents an insurmountable ideal. (laughs) It's actually quite intimidating. In turn, the Sermon on the Mount issues a tragic indictment as to our obvious inadequacies. No one can read through the Sermon on the Mount and walk away feeling real good about themselves. Like to this point, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, author Philip Yancey, he writes, inarguably, the Sermon on the Mount proves that before God, we all stand on level ground. Murderers and temper throwers, adulterers and lusters, thieves and coveters, we are all desperate. And that is, in fact, the only state appropriate to a human being who wants to know God. Having fallen from the absolute ideal, we have nowhere to land but in the safety net of absolute grace. You know, one way of interpreting this sermon that I believe will be critically helpful to the way that we then seek to apply the Sermon on the Mount, it's the fact, and and here's a way to read it, that what's, like, the life that Jesus was describing, what, what he's really describing in the Sermon on the Mount, the life he's describing is, in fact, his own. <laughs> that, like, This is a declaration of who he is, a presentation of him. You see, Jesus, as we'll see, is the only perfect demonstration of all of the characteristics he presents in the Sermon on the Mount. Meaning, and I think this is key, the Sermon on the Mount really defines for us what Christ's likeness practically looks like in each of us. The reason that this perspective, I believe, is important is that when you come across areas in the sermon (laughs) that you fail to emulate, right? Where you get punched in the gut. It will happen frequently. The appropriate reaction in that moment should be humility. (laughs) Okay, I I fall short of that. And then a return to the cross, which is the source of our rightness with God, and a renewed dependence on now walking in the Spirit. Man, I I can't do that. Jesus, you're going to have to do that in me. And you're going to have to do that through me. I can't do it. That's a good reaction when you read through the Sermon on the Mount. That's the appropriate conclusion. Again, as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount, it is really important that you don't forget it is not a declaration of the life that Jesus wants his disciples to work hard to live out. That's not what the sermon is. But a description of, of the life Jesus is presently wanting to make us into. That's what the Sermon on the Mount's about. In his commentary on this passage, Oswald Chambers, he says it best. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is getting his way with us. The Sermon on the Mount is not some unattainable goal. It is a statement of what will happen in me when Jesus Christ has changed my nature by putting his own nature in me. Jesus Christ is the only one who can fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. This is why Jesus spoke this sermon to his disciples upon seeing the multitudes of broken, hurting people. You see, while the day will come when the king does return, 
And the day will come when he puts an end to the chaos. And he establishes his kingdom. And he rules in all righteousness. Until that day, it is our job as his disciples, as his followers, as the citizens of the coming kingdom to bring a taste of heaven to this earth. A taste of Jesus. Now, this morning, I'm going to close out our time together doing something I have never done before. And I debated doing this. I went back and forth, back and forth. And I wasn't really convinced to do it until I just did it. And then I was like, wow, we should do this. Since starting next week, we're going to begin systematically working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to do it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I mean, we're going to dissect this baby. And it's going to take us a little while. We're not going to shortchange it. We're going to work our way through it. But I think one of the, one of the, the negative results of of that is that you you lose the whole like you dive into the minutia before you get the whole like the totality of it meaning that i think to help us understand the sermon on the mount before we get into the details there's something powerful in just taking a second and absorbing the whole so the way we're going to close is i'm going i'm going to read the sermon on the mount no commentary, no observations. I'm just going to let Jesus' words be Jesus' words. We'll let the text just kind of ring out for itself. And then next week, with the totality of it already in mind, we'll start working our way through, specifically with the Beatitudes, which is a blast. But again, you get the bigger picture. I think it, it's helpful. So buckle up. David Guzik said 12 minutes and 30 seconds. I landed about the same place, but we'll see how this goes. And then we'll eat lunch. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For, though, for so they persecuted the prophets, who are before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it's all fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. 
You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you'll by no means get out of there till you've paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. 
and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or else will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, and what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you into pieces. Ask, 
and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So, Father, Lord, we just let that ring out. Your word.